This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this episode, we're trying something a little bit different here. It's actually going to take us over the next two episodes, so I hope people like it because otherwise it's two episodes that won't get much traction. But I recorded one very long interview, about 50 minutes or so of content, and we're going to use that interview for two episodes. And there's a little bit of feedback that led me to try this. I think some people were looking for a little bit more technical content per episode. And in this particular interview, you'll see that we or here, I guess, that we cover an awful lot of different areas. We really cover a lot of ground here, and it gives me a good opportunity to explore a bunch of other concepts. This episode will be good for continuing education credits in all provinces, including accident and sickness credits. It will also cover your financial planning credit for those who need financial planning credits through Financial Planning Canada. And for those who are carrying the CFP designation or the level one certification, it's time to start thinking about your credits. Your year end for that is December 31st. You have just a couple months now to get all those credits in place. Today's episode is with Ray. Ray is a financial advisor. They hear him give a little bit of background here. To get to this interview, Ray had asked me a bunch of fairly specific questions about a, a particular client scenario. I said, well, why don't we meet up and we'll record it? And Ray was good with that. We chatted by email a little bit beforehand. He sent me his financial plan done up in Razor for this client with all the information anonymized, of course. You wouldn't want the client particulars out there, but it was good. It was good to get to see. I don't see a ton of advisor-produced financial plans sort of on the street. I see a lot of capstone assignments, and that's quite a bit different. I have a comment here about communication style. This is going to sound like criticism, and I know I do this too. We all tend to interrupt. In fact, one of the folks who presented at last year's, I believe it was Financial Planning Week, made the comment that the average medical student will let a patient speak for 10 seconds on average. That's the average amount of text or words that a patient can get out before they're interrupted by that medical student. I'm not sure if doctors are any better or worse for this, but this is what the study showed around med students. And that particular speaker had commented that with training, those doctors were able to ramp up their time to 18 seconds. And you can hear in this interview a little bit that Ray and I step on each other. And maybe it's just the nature of a longer conversation. But something I want you to think about is If you are a regular podcast listener, 
and you listen to, I like Sam Harris. I know that there are people who have their concerns with Sam's politics or whatever. I don't really want to get into that. I think he has good guests on who are interesting. But if you listen to Sam Harris's podcast, he does a good job, I find, most of the time where he will ask a guest a question and really just let that guest go. And we don't get any sort of feedback while the guest is answering. The assumption when you're not giving that verbal feedback is that you're listening to that person. Whereas sometimes when you give the uh-huh or mm or those types of verbal intonations while that person is talking, it can feel a little bit like you're actually trying to jump in and say something. I think that it's something we can all get used to. And of course, I talk for a living, so I know I'm guilty of this sometimes. But I think it's something we can all get used to is just to let the other person in a conversation talk. Just let that go. Let them finish what they're saying. And once they're done what they're saying, then it's time to speak. I know that it's rude to interrupt and I think sometimes in the flow of a conversation, it doesn't feel like interrupting, but I would just challenge you next time you're sitting across the table or at the coffee shop or whatever with a client, that when you ask that person a question, really just let them go. Give them time to fully answer that question and don't be in a rush to insert something back into that conversation. You'll hear some valuable stuff when you let people speak. And I have the benefit of course, I always have the bully pulpit here in the webinars that I run or whatever the case is. I very much control the flow of discussion. So maybe I'm not the best one to comment on that, but I'm sure some of you will pick up on it as you're listening. I know for sure that I did. The color for today's episode is blue. The color is blue. Let's get into the conversation with Ray. And as you're listening, there will be the occasional time when I take the chance to insert some commentary about something that we are discussing. I hope you enjoy. Thanks very much. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today, Ray. Not a problem. So Ray is a financial advisor based out of Winnipeg and carries his insurance license and currently working towards the CFP. And how long you been in the business for, Ray? I'm starting my seventh year. Is it a family operation? Do I have that right? Uh, just me. Okay. So entirely independent, all on your own, right? Yes. Wow. Okay. That's pretty adventurous, right? So you've recently decided to start into the CFP program. Can I ask some of what motivated that decision? I guess it was uh, two things. The first reason was I, I wanted to step up my game, I guess. I uh, just wanted to get more knowledge and just be a better advisor for my clients. When I got into the industry, I was mainly insurance focused because of the company that I joined initially was more insurance focused. And so I'm still believing the whole holistic model and uh, want to service my clients fully, not just focus on just insurance. And, and the second reason is just kind of just keeping updated with the industry and kind of where it's going. I, I think CFP is going to be the standard of the futures based on what I've been reading and hearing what's going on out there. 
I had an email from a guy who's in his early 60s this morning asking if he is CFP because he's concerned for his time in the business, whether or not it ends up being that standard. And I'm not sure that's ever going to happen. I don't like to speculate on that. But I think for a young person in the business today, I would take it before anything big changes for sure. They're kind of after the whole financial advisor label. I think they're wanting to move it towards salesman, right? If I'm correct. Certainly in Ontario, Ontario recently finished its review of the use of the term financial advisor. I'll share the links to that. That's quite interesting. And I wouldn't be surprised to see some action come out of that. I've heard from folks in Ontario recently that even though there's a change in government since that report was completed, the new Ontario government is still keen to pick up that baton. So yeah, that's a good point, Ray. The whole Ontario thing might push us in that direction. And really, once Ontario does something like that, whether we like it or not, the rest of the country often by default follows suit, right? Yes. So here, Ray, bring up the concept of title protection for financial planning. And this is impressive. Ray was right on top of this, that it wasn't long after Ontario introduced its uh, draft legislation that we actually had this interview. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about what's going on here. Now, we can rewind back to 2014. And in 2014, Ontario rolled out the first stages of a project to gather information about whether or not financial planning and financial advice needed to be somehow differently regulated. And I'd actually give kudos to the current government in Ontario. I know they get lambasted in a lot of other ways, but something they did that's pretty impressive is they actually kept that work going. A lot of times when you get a change in government, any work of the prior government gets completely thrown out. But the consultation work that was done by the prior government on Ontario did stand up. Now, I want to just take a couple of minutes here and review quickly the recommendations that were made by this prior group. So this is now quite old. The actual recommendations were released, the letter dated to the Minister of Finance, November 1st of 2016. Basically, the uh, recommendations comprise the following. The first, and really the whole point of this exercise, was that the expert panel came up with a recommendation that said that there should be some sort of regulation of the provision of financial planning and financial advice, which outside of Quebec today in Canada, those are unregulated activities. Really the only regulation we have in Canada outside of Quebec, of course, relates to the sale of products. So the thought here is they kind of want to divorce the regulation that happens on product sales from the regulation that happens on the provision of financial advice or financial planning. Now, I know a lot of people push back at that. One of the things that I liked about this recommendation was they said, if you're already regulated, so let's say you have an insurance license, well, there's an expectation there that there's a bunch of advice that goes along with the sale of insurance. Let's continue to let the insurance regulators do their job on that front. And really only where you have a gap in regulation, do we want to bring that in? The next thing that they asked for was title protection. And this is actually where Ontario focused with its draft legislation. We'll come back to that more in a couple minutes. So the idea here 
was, and it's really interesting to read the original report of the expert panel. I went through this. When the expert panel was doing its work, I would survey groups in my classes and we would get everybody to pull out their business card. And if you had 30 people in the room, you would hear a dozen or 15 different titles. And the concern here is do consumers know what they're getting when they sit down with the person who has financial advisor on their business card? And a lot of people say, well, not really that big a deal. They'll figure it out or you know, we kind of all do the same thing. So who really cares about it? But I will use the example that I always use. And this is around Wells Fargo. So Wells Fargo no longer are doing business in Canada, but their Canadian operations were primarily not quite payday lending, but the place you would go to borrow money to buy a couch if you couldn't afford to buy a couch. Or they would do some B mortgages, some alternative mortgages, car loans for people who maybe wouldn't be able to get a car loan otherwise, really into that second tier consumer finance space. If you sat down at a Wells Fargo branch, the person sitting across from you normally had financial advisor on their business card. When I point that out, a lot of people say, well, really, that's not fair. That person's not doing the same job that I'm doing when I talk about insurance and investments and financial planning and so forth. So that's where I think the title protection was welcomed by a lot of people who were reasonably aware of what was happening in the industry. And then related to that, the third recommendation here is that there be some sort of approved credentialing on the financial planning side. This is a place a lot of people get a little bit confused, even people who carry the CFP certification. So the CFP itself is really in Canada just a trademark or a brand. That's really what it is. I'm not a certified financial planner professional. You'll hear me talk about that in the interview. I don't carry the certification. If I were to start calling myself a CFP professional or put CFP on my business card or behind my name or whatever the case is, potentially FP Canada would take issue with that. And they really only have a civil recourse against me. They don't have a way to deal with it other than just suing me. They couldn't just report that and make me stop doing that. They would have to actually take me through the courts. And a lot of people are surprised at that. What I can absolutely do is I can call myself a financial planner in any province except for Quebec today without any sort of recourse. There is a little bit of regulation in British Columbia around this. The Insurance Council of British Columbia says if you are insurance licensed, that you can't call yourself a financial planner unless you carry an appropriate financial planning credential. That's the second thing that actually ends up showing up in Ontario's legislation. The next thing that the expert panel asked for, number four in their list, is I think probably a pipe dream and something I don't think we're going to see in Canada anytime soon. Even in the United States, which is a little further along with this stuff, this has become a significant block as far as creating any sort of regulation here. And this is the statutory best interest duty this is where the F word comes in. So they say statutory best interest duty. It's really a fiduciary duty. And this is something I would be very surprised to see show up in Canada. There are a few places in Canada where you do get a fiduciary duty for financial advisors. The biggest one being those who have a discretionary wealth management 
as part of their uh, business model. So if I bring a client on and I have the authority to make trades on behalf of that client, that's an unlimited trading authority. I have the ability to make trades. I am a fiduciary as far as that relationship goes, but I'm still not a fiduciary as far as the delivery of financial advice or financial planning or the sale of insurance products or whatever the case is. Now you can choose to hold out as a fiduciary. You can call yourself a fiduciary. And then if you ended up doing something that the client felt was not in accordance with your fiduciary standard, again, the only recourse for the client would be a civil recourse. They would have to sue you. There's no regulator that would likely enforce that. We do have a small number of people acting in a fiduciary capacity. That's really it. I occasionally hear people from the Institute of Advanced Financial Planning, which is the place that takes care of the RFP, the Registered Financial Planner designation. And they'll say that they have a fiduciary standard, but it's not written exactly that way. And I'm looking forward to some angry emails back from folks who carry the RFP, but I would challenge you to crack open the Institute for Advanced Financial Planning's standards and have a look at the language in there. And at least the way that I read it, I don't specifically see the F word in there. I don't see fiduciary in there. So interested to hear back from people about that. It's something that the panel asked for. One of the big challenges with it is that if you have somebody who works in a role where they sell proprietary products, there's a difficulty with marrying up the sale of proprietary products with a fiduciary standard. It's going to be a tough one. I think that's a hard thing. And I don't know if it actually brings that much benefit. I'm not sure that consumers are so much better served by a fiduciary standard. And you see this all the time. I know Tony Robbins did this a few years ago where he says this sort of man on the street thing and goes and interviews people and says, hey, uh, man on the street, are you aware that your financial advisor doesn't have to act in your best interests? And I find that's kind of a little bit of an ambush way to pose the question. So I don't know that our industry would be so much better off if everybody were held to a fiduciary standard. I think there are a lot of other things that we can get better at that really would make consumer experiences better. Again, I'm looking forward to angry emails or tweets or Facebook posts or whatever, but that's something I'm happy to discuss with, uh, with anybody who wants to discuss it. The next recommendation, number five on the list here that the expert panel in Ontario asked for was to have a framework for implementing these changes, really for Ontario to shake up how it regulates financial advisors. And this has happened, actually. This was already sort of in the works when this came out. What used to be FISCO, the Financial Services Commission of Ontario, has sort of broken up now. And as far as financial advisors go, financial advisors in Ontario are now dealing with uh, FISRA, the Financial Services Regulatory Agency. I hope that's a little bit better. I had to deal with FISCO here and there over the years. And I know people in the Western provinces aren't always enamored of their insurance councils, but honestly, the insurance council is comprised of your peers if you're in, in one of the four Western provinces. And you should be grateful for that, at least, because at least you have people there who have walked in your shoes. And I found dealing with uh, FISCO was always a lot more bureaucratic than dealing with the insurance councils. The next is referral arrangements. And this is something that really, I would suggest, came out of the exempt market side. 
And we saw some toing and froing here in 2008, 2009, where we had so much question about what had to be licensed as far as exempt market securities offerings, or who had to carry a license and who had to be a licensed rep and a dealer and so forth. And a lot of that got sorted out. I would suggest that by and large, I think landed where it should have, that now you have pretty much everybody who's active in that space with some sort of regulatory requirement or licensing requirement. Again, I know there are people who are not happy with where it ended up, but it really could have been a lot worse in terms of over-regulating. I think that space has largely benefited actually from the regulation that's shown up there. Although I know there are some issues with, for example, maximum investments, and I make no excuses for that, whatever. I don't know that that's the right step. Anyways, that's where we saw a lot of referral arrangements where people were really doing business where they were going to get paid for the sale of a product, but they weren't really the one selling the product. And that's something that the expert panel asked to be shut down. Now, I don't think that that's one that's going to change as a result of what's happening in Ontario. The next is some sort of central registry. I would love to see this one-stop shop where I can go and look at any particular financial advisor's full set of licensing and credentials. I can look at disciplinary history. But this is one that I think is probably a pipe dream again. I don't know what government has the will to do this. You occasionally get regulators argue that this might be a privacy violation. Not sure how that argument holds up, but it's one that I think is probably not feasible. And then we look at financial literacy. Curiously, actually, just earlier this week, so I'm recording this in mid-September, and Ontario has its very first grade 10 financial literacy curriculum now. And again, that's something of a holdover from the last government, but I know this government has been a big proponent of financial literacy efforts. So that's sort of a summary of what the expert panel asked for in Ontario. Now, what did they actually get? So the draft legislation, this is the Financial Professionals Title Protection Act 2019, and this legislation came out in May 2019, May 29th, actually. And really, it only touches on two things. It talks about protecting the title financial planner and protecting the title financial advisor. And it looks like probably what will happen is we will have credentialing bodies. And I assume what we'll have here is FP Canada. I wouldn't be surprised if Advocus shows up in here. Maybe CSI, we'll see, I'm not sure. The Institute for Advanced Financial Planning, the IAFP. But those entities will show up as the credentialing bodies. Ultimately, really what this legislation will say is you have to have some sort of relationship with somebody like that in order to call yourself a financial planner or financial advisor. And absent that relationship, then you will have to go a different route. You'll have to hold out, and this is what Ray mentions in the interview, you'll have to hold out as an insurance salesperson or some other version of that. I'm not sure how effective this will be. Maybe this will work because Canadians are so accustomed to that term, financial advisor. There was an alternate approach suggested here. It's actually the one that I had preferred, but 
I know lots of people disagreed with me on this, and I understand why, but the alternate here was to regulate activity. And we do see this, one notable example of this is from the American CFP board, and the CFP board has a distinction between financial advice and financial planning. And they really draw this line where they say, if you're sort of on the left side of this, if you're giving kind of, it's almost like more basic advice or having a more basic discussion with a client, that's financial advice. But if you're engaged in a comprehensive overview of their objectives and you're going to touch on the big six areas of their financial life, that that's where you're really engaged now in financial planning. I find this whole thing obviously an interesting discussion and I'm not sure where we're going to land with it. One notable thing is that Saskatchewan, following on the heels of what's happened in Ontario, is now in a consultation period or they've just closed out their consultation period actually. And I think they're looking to also implement some sort of regulation around the use of the term financial planner. We'll see what that looks like. I'll be really interested to see if Saskatchewan mirrors what's happened in Ontario or goes in a completely different direction. I will put a couple of links related to this in the show notes. There's a paper that just came out, Derek Tharp, at Providence or University of Rhode Island. I can't remember, sorry, but I'll put his recent research paper in the show notes. And he talks about consumers relating to that title financial advisor. And he does make the point that consumers tend to put more trust in that person who calls himself a financial advisor versus a bunch of other titles. And there's a bunch more there. It's a paper that's really quite worth reading. And I'll also put the links to the expert panel recommendations, as well as the Ontario legislation. Let's get back to Ray. We have hardly heard from it all so far. So the reason that we scheduled this, the reason that I reached out to you for this particular interview was fairly early into your studies. You reached out to me concerning a client you have, a medical professional client you have, and I found many of the questions you asked mirrored some of what you're going to go through as you work through the CFP core curriculum. And I'm wondering if you can go through some of the thoughts or questions you had around that person. We can work through those. Yeah, so I'm working with a young medical professional. He's been in practice for about three years now. He's doing pretty well. And in Manitoba, previous to last year, his profession wasn't allowed to incorporate. And so I think just now Manitoba has allowed for it to for this uh, particular medical professional to incorporate. So he has some questions around incorporating, wanting to understand why incorporate and the process of incorporation, basically where to begin uh, in terms of incorporation and how do we incorporate that into his current financial plan. It's a really big question. And of course, we had some significant changes to the benefits of incorporation last year with the federal budget from 2018. I'll go over a couple of the different factors here. I find there are two factors that are generally the decision makers around incorporation. One is, is there any tax benefit to be gained? And the second is, is there a reduction in your personal liability? The problem for medical professionals, and this is pretty universal, is that 
you get very little reduction in your personal liability. You're essentially forced to incorporate under the professional corporation rules. And are you aware of how the professional corporation rules work here? Ray, is this something you've looked at already? Not necessarily. So essentially what happens here, the concern has always been, yeah, fine, we can let these folks incorporate. And you can trace this back to Ontario in the early 90s. The idea being Mm -hmm. that Ontario cut, in that case, physician compensation. And they said, okay, physicians, but don't sweat it because we're going to make it up to you by allowing you to incorporate. And that will give you a tax benefit that will offset the reduced compensation we're going to pay you. But the challenge is that the last thing that the government of Ontario wanted was for physicians to incorporate and for their patients to not have a way to go after them personally for medical malpractice. So that creates the professional corporation rules. And we see that with lawyers and accountants and physicians. And it's not the first time that we had those prof corp rules. Those date back to the 1930s, as far as I'm aware. But that's where we really saw it kind of come to light in Ontario for medical professionals. And then we saw basically one at a time, the various professions across the country, a lot of medical professions that have now been permitted to incorporate that at one time could not, but you still retain Mm -hmm. all the same personal liability. So if you you mess up treating a client and you get sued for it, it still comes to your personal assets. Although of course you'll have liability insurance for that. So that benefit of incorporation is really off the table. Although I know in this particular medical profession you're dealing with, the proprietors tend to be also small business owners. They have employees and premises and that kind of thing. And that liability is still potentially able to be reduced via incorporation. So you know, if you had a slip and fall type of accident on the premises, then that would probably reduce the personal liability that your client is exposed to. Yeah, in the field of liability exposure, it's really a mixed bag. There's some benefit there, but it's not as big a benefit as if you were in a landscaping business or a construction business or something like that, where then incorporation really does create a fairly bright line between your personal and corporate. Now, the other potential concern around liability protection there comes when you borrow money. So would your client be in a position where they might be borrowing money within their business? No. So that's really, I would suggest, not something to consider too much. And the only reason is because generally, when you borrow money in a business setting like that, you're often required to provide a personal guarantee anyways, which pokes a hole in the benefit of being incorporated. So at least from my perspective, the liability issue is sort of a wash for your client. Now, that's my perspective on it. And it's certainly the kind of thing where the accountant will have a perception. Have you talked to the client about their dealings with their accountant at all? Uh, yeah, I actually uh, referred my, my personal accountant to him. So he's, he's working with uh, my accountant. Yeah. Okay. And do you know if your accountant has a view one way or the other on incorporation? He kind of touched on it, um, but he said we'll kind of visit it at the time. So... This is kind of that time right now where we're, we're trying to decide if it's worth it for him to incorporate or not. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Because I find a lot of accountants are very pro incorporation. So it's nice to hear that it sounds like yeah. I wants to slow down a little bit on that decision. 
Now on the tax side, that's where probably your client's going to get the greatest benefit, right? So have you talked this over at all or explored at all the benefits one way or the other of incorporation? Basically, from what I know with incorporation, I do know that retained earnings get taxed a lot less. I, I'm, I think here in Manitoba, it's about 11%. It'll be 9% in 2019 for your first $500,000 of active income in Manitoba. Almost no tax at all, really. I think for somebody that's within his income level, I think it would be beneficial because I don't think he lives off the full income that he's making right now. Right. You have quite high personal tax rates and you hit those high personal tax rates at a lower level of income than in any other province. Yes. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College. bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. Okay, it's time for another intermission here. And I want to take a few minutes to talk about taxes. You hear Ray talk about whether or not this particular professional should incorporate, and it's a relatively new opportunity. I'm going to talk a little bit later on about knowing how the professional corporation rules work. We'll come back to that. But for now, let's just get into tax rates. You should know what your tax rates are for the province you're in. And Manitoba, notably, a little bit unusual here in that for small business incomes, that's your first $500,000 of active business income. This is where there's a 9% federal tax rate as compared to if you're over that $500,000, on your income over $500,000, at least for a small business, then you're at a 15% federal tax rate. Manitoba has a 0% tax rate on that income up to $500,000. So if you're running a small business in Manitoba, you have a 9% federal tax rate and a 0% provincial tax rate on that first $500,000 of income. In most provinces, that tax rate is somewhere between 2 and 5%. Manitoba is exceptional with no tax there at all. However, Manitoba makes up for it with personal taxation. And it's not that the personal tax rates in Manitoba are so high. Maybe my language in the interview here is a little bit misleading. It's that you don't have to make a lot of income to hit those very high tax brackets. So the top tax bracket in Manitoba is 17.4%, which is comparable to the top tax bracket in other provinces. The difference, though, is that in Manitoba, you only have to make about $70,000, that's $70,000, $70, in order to hit that top tax bracket. It's really a strong incentive in Manitoba to incorporate and use a corporation to shelter as much of your income as you possibly can, and really to take as little money out of the corporation as possible. In other provinces, by contrast, you normally have to make about $150,000 to $200,000 to hit that tax rate around 15 to 
depending on the province. So that's a big difference. And I'm not sure how Manitoba stays competitive, but obviously it happens. Maybe the really fantastic lakes and beaches around Winnipeg, which I know people think that I'm joking about, but honestly, that is a draw there. So who knows, whatever it is. But that's something Ray talks about in here is sort of managing those tax rates. And really, there is a strong incentive for those uh, professionals in Manitoba to incorporate, especially if you're going to be leaving money in the corporation. And Ray talks about that quite rightly. He talks about his client who has a relatively low spending habits compared to the income that the client earns. That is exactly where incorporation really can make a lot of sense. So this client is spending significantly less than they are earning. Can you give an idea about where that sits? Yeah. So what he was telling me, he was also setting funds aside as well for taxes. And that's part of the big reason why he doesn't spend as much as he makes, because he doesn't want to be hit with huge tax bills. He's saving about 25% of his income right now. That's exactly where often we sort of draw that line as to where incorporation is beneficial because if you can live on a much smaller proportion and really take advantage of those lower corporate tax rates, now you have a lot of planning opportunities. Now, you talked to your accountant at all about saving within the corporation or about using the corporation as a savings vehicle? Not yet. It is an opportunity that's available, although we've had some holes poked in it the last couple of years. If we were having this discussion three years ago, and I'm not sure what the professional corporation rules are for this particular profession in Manitoba, but if we were having this discussion Mm -hmm. three years ago, we certainly would have explored the idea of bringing the spouse on as a shareholder. Is your client married? I can't remember. No, serious relationship looking like it's going to be marriage. Okay. So that marriage would have presented a nice tax planning opportunity at one time. But today, that's probably no longer available. The tax on split income rules, especially for professional corporation type of settings, the tax on split income rules really make it untenable to split income in a situation like that. Now, if you get to a level where there's tons and tons of money on the table, there are some solutions out there, but I would suggest not worth implementing at this sort of level of income. Okay, here Ray introduces one of the more complicated questions that comes up when we're using a corporation. And this is, if you're going to leave money in the corporation that's not invested directly back into your active business activities, is that money going to be invested appropriately? How are we going to invest it? Now, I find a lot of people here will do something like a corporate class mutual funds. And I generally like corporate class mutual funds here. The advantage is that you can defer a lot of your gains that way. And then you ultimately have a capital gain at disposition. And that capital gain at disposition, of course, will yield some capital dividend account credits which would let you take some of your gains back out of your corporation tax-free. My biggest concern with corporate class mutual funds today is that I think that we've seen the federal government cracking down on these a little bit. I think that if we look two or three years down the road from now, I would be really surprised if we still have any fixed income options available 
on the corporate class side. I could be completely wrong there. There's always some fund manager out there who is definitely smarter than I am. So we'll see if they are able to maybe continue winning at the game of cat and mouse that I would suggest they've by and large been successful at with the government to this point. The other question we have to address with a professional corporation, which is what we have when we have a medical professional who incorporates or engineers who incorporate or architects who incorporate, lawyers, accountants, there will be a set of rules in place that says from your professional college or whatever the entity is that governs that profession in that province. And they'll say, hey, there might be some restrictions on what you can do in your corporation. So they might not allow a whole bunch of assets to accrue within the corporation. That's possible. So you got to watch that first off. If you have some ambitious plan and then we look at the actual rules, we don't want to put our clients way offside by using that. And that can extend to holding companies. You might not be allowed to use a holding company. For example, here in Alberta, physicians can't normally use a holding company to own shares of their medical professional corporations. So you have to watch those rules. And that often does involve the advisor getting comfortable, digging in a little bit, understanding those rules. And I would suggest that for Ray, in this particular case, it's probably beneficial to him if he wants to have more of these kind of clients to really get to know the professional corporation rules for this type of client. Now, the other thing that's be considered before you start to invest in the corporation is the impact on the small business deduction. I already mentioned the big benefit in Manitoba of being able to use that small business deduction. If you're earning active income in Manitoba under $500,000, you had a 9% tax rate. Combined federal and provincial tax rate on that income is 9%. Whereas if you're over $500,000, then your tax rate is 27%. That's three times the tax rate. It's not only though by earning income over $500,000 that you're exposed to that. As a lot of you will be very well aware, if you have passive income in your corporation, there's an acronym here for this. This is your AAII, your Adjusted Aggregate Investment Income. And it will generally be anything that's not specifically active business income in the corporation. Now, I talked earlier about corporate class mutual funds. And for example, a corporate class mutual fund will not create a problem here if it's only creating deferred capital gains. But if you have dividends paid out or you realize some capital gains, those amounts will add to that AAII. And the challenge here is that if you generate passive income more than $50,000, for every dollar of passive income over that $50,000 threshold, you lose $5 of your small business deduction. So if you have a corporation that generates $150,000 of passive income, that's $100,000 over the threshold, 100,000 times five is $500,000, you would lose access altogether to the small business deduction. And now all of your active income would be taxed at that 27% tax rate. It's a trailing calculation for what it's worth. So what'll happen is if your passive income in the 2019 tax year is $70,000, 
that's $20,000 over. So 20,000 times five is $100,000. And then in the 2020 tax year, you would have $100,000 less uh, small business deduction available. You would only have it on $400,000 versus $500,000. So really what I would suggest that Ray might think about here is if he has his clients start to invest within the corporation, they really just have to accept that if the tax rules don't change, that one day his client is probably going to lose access to that small business deduction. Honestly, though, given that high tax rate that we talked about earlier in Manitoba, that's, I would suggest, a small price to pay. I would still rather be taxed at 27% as compared to roughly 50%, and especially if you're able to leave that money back inside the corporation. Okay, let's pop back and hear more of what Ray has to say. Your client in this case, I saw, has some fairly, I would suggest, aggressive goals for retirement planning. Can you talk through those a little bit? Yes. When I asked him what his retirement number would be, and uh, so he, he kind of gave me an aggressive number. And uh, as I punched that information into the razor, it, it just was showing that he was really short based on what he had right now and what he's saving. So we look at page two of the retirement analysis. It's showing that he is about $57,000 of savings a year short of his goal. So can I ask how he came up yeah. with that retirement savings goal? Do you know what went into that? I guess a lot of his colleagues around him have pretty expensive lifestyles, I guess you can say. I guess he just, he attends a lot of conferences and, and just kind of sees the kind of lifestyles that his colleagues have. And I guess he's kind of expecting that kind of lifestyle down the road. His income, you said, had increased at a fairly steady pace over his business. And he's expecting that to continue? Yes. Okay, interesting. I guess there has to be some cap in there somewhere, right? He told me that the owner of the clinic cleared about 350 a year, and he's kind of like a mentor to him. So I guess the owner of the clinic is expecting him to reach those levels, and he's also expecting to reach those levels. If anything, he told me he wants to do a lot better than that, but I'm not too sure what the, the ceiling is for that industry. Interesting. So this is where you get a real trade-off or challenge here, where long-term, that retirement goal seems quite ambitious. But if his income does get to those levels that he's imagining, then that pace doesn't seem at all unrealistic. Yeah. I guess based on his income now, um, it's just not feasible. But I believe like you don't 100% reject the idea, just kind of going based on what's available today. Yeah, I think if you still set that fairly ambitious saving goal today, you know, the best time to save is today. And certainly saving at this young age is worth more to him than waiting to save. And certainly it's hard to criticize mm. sets that ambitious goal for themselves. So are you using, I assume, RRSP right now? I'm using both. So he's putting about 500 into his RSP and 500 into his TFSA. I guess at that pace, he'll run out of TFSA room before too long, or maybe ramp up that TFSA a little bit. So you know, what's realistic for him to save every year? Is that $1,000 a year? Is that sort of realistic amount that he can put away right now? I think so. That kind of leads to the other questions that I had was because he wasn't sure how much he wanted to save because he just wasn't sure how much he needed to put aside for tax. I don't know if that's an answer that I should be providing or a, an answer that I should know. 
And I was assuming that my accountant would know, but he's never really come up with a concrete amount for him to set aside. Now, I don't know if that's something the accountant should know, or is it because um, his income has just grown rapidly over the first three years of his career? Yeah, I mean, that's it's a little bit tough to estimate, but if I were in that position, <laughs> I would plug maybe $180,000 into a tax calculator. There's plenty of tax calculators you can grab online for free. You can use tax tips or Young or KPMG all have free online calculators. You should be able to get a rough idea what that looks like. In that section of the interview, we heard Ray talk about the difficulties with knowing how to choose an accountant. And I have some thoughts on this, although nothing perfect here. Uh, as with anything, we sometimes have people who we think are giving excellent service to our clients, and then it turns out that, in fact, they are not. And there's some things that we can do to prevent that or to reduce the chances that our client does get bad advice. The first is, kind of similar to what we see today, and we talked about this earlier in the episode with financial planning, accountants are not title restricted. You'll find people can call themselves accountants really no matter what designations they hold, some of the services they can offer that might be restricted. But as far as actually the ability to hold out as an accountant, there's no requirement to carry a certain title or a certain amount of education there. And for that reason, first and foremost, if I'm sending a client, especially a small business owner client, to an accountant, I want to make sure that person is duly certified, that they would carry the CPA certification. And I think most people are aware of this now. We used to have three different accounting designations in Canada, but a couple of years ago, they amalgamated. So now we no longer have CA, CMA, CGA. It's all just CPA, all falls under one umbrella. I want to make sure that I'm dealing with an accountant who provides services that are gonna match what my client needs. And this is where it gets into a question of, the client's complexity. And I find for a small business owner client, you're probably going to be sufficient dealing with a smaller firm that specializes in small business. Lots of those out there. That being said, sometimes the larger national firms might be more appropriate. And I would suggest that might be necessary where you have a client who has, let's say, U.S. connections or maybe once that client gets to a certain level of net worth, you want to look at that. Although, again, that person might be served well by a smaller firm. I do want to make sure that if I'm sending my client to a smaller firm, their specialization matches the client's needs. That U.S. person might be well served by a small firm if that small firm regularly deals with U.S. needs. We want to make sure that we understand the accountant's fees. What is our client going to pay? And it might be that the accountant gives a sort of general description of fees, and that's fine. But when it comes to something like doing a T2, the client should have a pretty good understanding of what that corporate tax filing is going to look like. Once you've provided the referral, I think it's important to follow up with the client and see how the appointment went. Did they have a clear conversation with the accountant? Do they understand what they're getting into? Are they aware of the type of recommendations that person might make? Do they understand the billing and fees? 
if your clients come away with a bad feeling about their meeting with the accountant that you've referred, maybe that's a hint here that either you want to follow up with the accountant and see what might have gone wrong, or maybe you want to look for other referral sources. You would also want an accountant who understands your business to an extent, and I think it's worth taking that person out for a lunch or a coffee and asking them about how they view, let's say, the dividend versus salary mix or how they view RSPs versus corporate savings. I don't think they necessarily have to agree with you, but I think it's good that you can understand their thought process and maybe you have a chance to discuss with them what your thought process is. I think with any outside referral like that, any other professionally referring, I think you do want to make sure that you understand where one another is coming from. And of course, the last thing I want is an accountant who completely disagrees with me on, let's say, the use of insurance. I'm sure, like me, most of you on the call understand that insurance can fill a valuable role in a financial plan. I occasionally run into an accountant who just outright says, I don't understand insurance. I don't get it. I don't know that it fits with any financial plan. Now, it might be that that person just needs a little bit of education and maybe sitting down with that person. You can help them to see where in your client's situation insurance can be useful. And I have seen that discussion work, actually. I recently had a conversation with a friend of mine here in Edmonton who said, you know, I haven't really seen the value of this permanent insurance before, but now it's coming around. And he's in an advisory capacity. So I know that it can happen that people start to pick up on that a little bit. I hope that's helpful for your discussions with not just accountants, but other professionals as well. We're going to hear more from Ray in the next episode. We're not done talking to Ray about small business owner interactions. The number for today's episode is five. The number for today's episode is five. I would encourage you to pop over to bccquiz.online, get your CE credits in place. I know quite a few people who are listening and don't necessarily get their CE credits. And I understand if you have them from elsewhere, you don't need them here. But of course, we designed this to make it easy to get those CE credits. So crack over to bccquiz.online once your car is stopped and do up your credits. And if you still need your CFP certification professional responsibility credit, pop over to businesscareercollege.com, go back to season two, episode one. And that episode, we deal with capacity concerns with clients and that's a place where you can get your professional responsibility credit you get it knocked out here and not be scrambling to get it around Christmas time which I know is something that people end up doing okay please join us again in a couple of weeks when we'll hear the remainder of our discussion with Ray and have a bunch more topics that come out of this very broad-reaching conversation so much. A bunch of people have a hand in producing this podcast. Joseph Tong takes care of our music and editing. Anthony Summers is responsible for tech support. 
Marian Nguyen takes care of all the CE applications to the various accrediting bodies. Marjorie Lewis takes care of certificates when the machine doesn't do it. Desiree Gretton Hicks and Penny Watt take care of our marketing, making sure that there are folks out there to listen to the podcast. Thanks to all those who help out. Thank you.